Well, welcome to Providence Road again. My name is Jeremy. I am one of the pastors at the church, and we are really glad that you're here with us this morning. We're continuing on in this series where we're calling The True and Better Story, where we're looking at the Bible in about eight weeks from beginning to end in an overview, looking at the major kind of story arc of the scripture to help us when we do read on our own, when we do um, dig into a book in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, that we understand where it goes in the context of God's story. Because the Bible is one story. It has 66 books, but they all fit together. There's a thread that runs through them all that makes them a story. Um, There's a story I want to share that kind of gets at where we're going today. And this is a true story. This man named uh, Shochi Yokoi was 26 when he was drafted into the Japanese army in 1941. And he fought on the island of Guam in the Pacific theater of World World War II. And in 1944, um, uh, the the, the Americans came in and um, took over Guam... And one of the things that the Japanese soldiers at the time, if you've read any um, World War II history, Japanese soldiers, um, the, the worst thing that could possibly happen if you were a Japanese soldier was to be taken prisoner of war. They would rather die than be taken prisoner of war by any of the allied forces. And so surrender was not an option to a Japanese soldier. This was pounded into their head. So when the U.S. forces took control of Guam, um, Yokoi fled into the jungle. He fled into the jungle of Guam, and he hid in a cave for 27 years until he was found in 1972. 27 years um, after, 25 to 27 years after the war had finished, He was still hiding in a cave in 1972, thinking that the war was still going on, thinking that he was still in danger of being taken prisoner by the Allied forces. Now, if you think about what was going through uh, Yokoi's mind here, he he was afraid. He was fearful of what might happen if if he came out of hiding and just made himself known. So he became enslaved to the jungle. Right? Like he, he had to be inside the jungle to, pr- to protect himself, to remain um, anonymous or unknown, and therefore he became a prisoner of it. Even after the war ended, his reality was that the war was still going on. Even though the objective reality, and as we look back on it, it seems crazy that for 25 or so years, he thought a war was still going on. He, he was living a reality and a story that caused him to act in a very strange and crazy way, right? hiding in a jungle for 25 years when you don't need to, um, and you have the freedom. If he would have just come out after the war was over, um, probably would have um, got to go back to Japan and go back to his home. But in his world, and in his reality, he was still a prisoner, even though that wasn't the reality. And that's often how we um, deal with our sin and our salvation. If we're followers of Jesus in here, we understand on some degree, yeah, we're, we're, we're free, right? We're saved. We're saved from something. We're saved from the penalty of our sin, which we looked at last week. But do we actually live in freedom? Do we live in freedom as followers of Jesus? Or there are parts of us that still feel like we're in slavery or that God isn't trustworthy in this particular area of our life. 
So today we're going to look at kind of the tension between, yes, we're saved, but are we truly free as followers of Jesus and how we live our everyday lives? So where we're at in this particular story of the scriptures, we've seen creation, fall, and we looked last week at the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis really 12 through about 17, chapters 12 through 17. Um, and now we find ourselves um, in Exodus, where the Israelites, God's people, are enslaved. They're enslaved to an oppressive, ty- tyrannical ruler and country known as the Egyptians. And we've already seen this cycle um, of, of the, God's people's unfaithfulness leading up to this point. Right? Several generations have passed from Abraham, you come to Exodus, and all throughout the book of Genesis, you see the cycle where God's people are are, um, are, are in a good place, they're receiving blessing from God, they forget about God, and they start going their own way. God gets angry, uh, takes his protection off of them, allows other nations to come in, usually conquering them, oppressing, oppressing them, and then the Israelites don't like that. They get tired of it, and they say, God, where are you at? Help us. We can't live like this any longer. Then God, because he's faithful to his promises, comes, rescues Israel, gets them out of their bondage and their slavery, and gives them um, an environment and a place and a, really a way of blessing to be lived. And then Israel is unfaithful once again. And the cycle continues over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's also oftentimes the cycle in our own hearts, in our own desires, and how we relate to God. So we've already seen God's steadfastness and God's patience and God's commitment to his covenant and his promises on display. And we're in just the second book of the Bible. And we see it clearly, and we're going to see it again clearly in the story today. So at the beginning of Exodus, the Israelites find themselves in slavery, right? They're in slavery, and early on in this book. And God's, God says through Moses, and we see this in Exodus chapter 2, that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So several generations had passed, but he remembers the covenant he made with Abraham. He remembers that. So everything he does comes out of the promise and the commitment he made and the covenant he made with Abraham. Now, this book, Exodus, teaches us about our salvation. If you ever wonder, what, what is salvation like? What really happened when I'm saved? How should I view my salvation now? The Exodus is the book to show us this, especially in narrative form. This book was written down to be an example to us in how our salvation works and how salvation actually looks even after we've been saved. And this story, this, this story of, of, of the Israelites fleeing Egypt and God helping them do that is referred, to, referred back to over and over and over throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New. This is one of those stories where God says, remember this, remember this, remember this, because this is a clear sign of his faithfulness, even in the midst of a, his people's unfaithfulness. Okay? So last week we saw... That God saves us from the penalty of our sin, welcomes us into his family, chooses a people through Abraham. And this week we're going to see that God saves us from the power that sin has in our lives. And we're going to see that through the characters in this story. Okay, So we're going to see four things as it relates to God saving us from the power of sin. The first thing we see is the power of sin, the power that sin can have over us. Let's look at um, verses 5 through 7 here. 
So after these 10 plagues, God has plagued Egypt and, and plagued Pharaoh with these plagues. And um, the Israelites clearly see that. Pharaoh's like, okay, I'm letting them go. I'm letting the people go, God. I hear you. I'm done with it. I'm letting them go. But then Israel runs into a physical barrier, and that's the Red Sea. They run into the Red Sea, and that's a problem, right? Because they're fleeing. They're trying to get out of there as quick as they can. And then we see in verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? You can imagine, right, just logically, Pharaoh wakes up, he realizes, wait a minute, I just lost millions of my labor force. What's this going to do to my economy? And then what, how's that going to affect my power? And how is that going to affect my ability to lead through power and might as Pharaoh did? He can't believe what he has done, right? He's like, okay, I've changed my mind. We got to go get him. So verse 6, so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And he took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over, of, of all of them. And so chariots, we kind of read over that because it's kind of different, obviously, from our day and age. But if you had any chariots in your army in this day and age, you were powerful. A chariot was the most sophisticated, powerful weapon of warfare at the time. And in Egypt, Egypt had tons of them, hundreds of them. And they were the, clearly the, wor- the world's superpower at the time. So he says he gets all the chariots, everything, and he goes after them. Pharaoh's like, we're going to get the Israelites and probably either, best case scenario, in- enslave them, right, from Israel's point of view. Worst case scenario, just wipe them out because he's so angry. And so the Egyptians are coming. They're coming Israel's there, they have a decision to make, right? Or they don't really have a decision to make. They just cry out, what's, what's going to happen, God? What's going to happen? And you can imagine what they're thinking, right? Pharaoh's coming behind them. Uh, the Red Sea's in front of them. What are they going to do? And Egypt is going to pursue them as far as they can, whatever it takes to recapture them. Uh, Pharaoh and Egypt, Egypt's army is going to do that. It's really the only way that Egypt can be stopped is for God to wipe them out. It's the only way. It's the only way to stop them is for them to be wiped out. And in this story, Pharaoh, an Egyptian's army, represents our sin. It represents our sin. This is why it's written down for us, right? Sin is powerful. Sin can have control over us. Sin is sneaky. Sin really tells us through, through Satan and through our own flesh and sin working together, really sin communicates to us, serve me or die. Serve me or die. So we can't just deal with our sin through behavior modification or management or abstaining or just doing it a little bit in moderation, right? We need to kill sin. The same way that Pharaoh was coming and he was not going to stop until he overtook God's people. He, need, he needed to be stopped and sin needs to be stopped. And it's even worse to have hidden or unconfessed sin because it leads to shame. And none of us like shame, so we cover up our shame. Like Adam and Eve did. We looked at a couple of weeks ago, right? We try to clean ourselves up. We escape. We medicate to keep that sin hidden and that sin from overtaking us and overpowering us. 
There's nothing we can do. There's no, we can't be good enough to overcome our sin nature. And Jesus says this in the gospels, right? He's talking to the Pharisees and he says, you're like these whitewashed tombs, really clean and beautiful and sparkling on the outside, but on the inside it contains decay and rottenness and corpses. This is the way the sin has overtaken you, he tells the Pharisees there. So sin is powerful, and sin must be put to death. And this is what happens to Egypt and Pharaoh. That's the first thing we see. Sin is powerful. Second, we see that what biblical freedom looks like. Let's look at verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped by the sea, by Piharoth in front of Baal Zephon. So here's what's happening. They're free from Egypt in a, in a way, right? They're not slaves anymore, but they're on the run. They're running away from their oppressors, right? So they're saved in one way, but they're not saved fully. They're free in some ways, but they're not free fully. And remember what God said to Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. Right? We know that line. That's a famous line from movies. But we often just stop there. God doesn't stop there. God doesn't just say to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go. Let them leave. Let them go. No, he says, let my people go so that they may worship me, that they may serve me. So it's not just freedom for the sake of freedom. It's freedom so that Israel, so that God's people may worship him, may serve him. So God could have said, just freed my people. So we need to really talk about what does this idea of freedom mean? It's in our vision statement as a church, um, leading people to find freedom and joy in Jesus is how we glorify God. That's in our mission statement. That's who we are as a church. So we need to talk about this idea of freedom. And I'll tell you, the freedom that is, is communicated and described in the Bible is different than our our present Western world's definition of freedom. So we need to really define this well. There's really two different kinds of freedom. There's freedom from and freedom for. Okay, freedom from is more of a negative kind of freedom. Um, If the opposite of freedom is constraint, right? We would all agree with that. Opposite of freedom is constraint. So freedom from is the ability to be free to do whatever you want to do. Right? If, if constraint is bad, if that's the opposite of freedom, then freedom from is just purely like, I just want to be free from all constraint. I don't want to be constrained by anything. I want absolute freedom. And usually the caveat thrown in here is, I want to be free to do anything I want as long as it doesn't harm anybody. As long as it doesn't harm anybody, I'm free to do whatever I want, which that's a problem because we, none of us can, can agree really on what harm is, right? What is harm? What does it mean to hurt someone? And then that, just that argument just falls apart because we can't agree on what actually causes harm to people. And our culture is filled with this message. I can kind of do whatever I want to do as long as I don't, um, I'm, I'm kind of free to do whatever I want to do as long as it doesn't hurt other people. And then that person kind of subjectively defines what it means by hurting other people. And we hear this all over our, our, our culture, right? That, that famous Scandinavian theologian and and philosopher Elsa from Frozen um, says, uh, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free, right? 
It's like your kids probably know that song better than most hymns, right? And like, and that's communicating, right? That that this idea that I can do whatever I want to do, right? Just let it go. Um, you also hear things in our culture like the heart wants what it wants. Follow your heart. You do you. Just do it. Speak your truth. Be true to yourself. And if we just stopped and asked, like, what do any of those things mean, right? We don't often even know what those things mean. Those things just start to come out. And if you buy into this, what you're saying is the main problem with the world, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago when we talked about sin, the main problem with the world are people out there putting constraints on me from find, really finding out who I truly am or being true to myself. So nobody needs to put any constraints around me. No person, no organization, no institution can tell me what to do. I am free to be my own person. So constraints are bad, especially as it relates to this kind of freedom. Now, negative freedom or freedom from is not always bad, right? We, we want to be free. We don't want to be under slavery uh, from our nation. We don't want to be under an oppressive ruler, we want to be free to, to, to worship who we want to worship, right, in our country. We want to be free to obey the laws as they're given in a nation. So freedom from isn't all bad, but if there's not an end to that, if it's just everybody's free from everything else, you, things lead to problems. Jonathan Grant says it really well. He says this, Modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality. The only rule being that we must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from the outside. By society, our parents, the church, or whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. And if you read the Bible, any length at all, from Genesis to Revelation, this uh, flies in the face of biblical definition of freedom. But there's freedom in the scriptures. We see it all over the scriptures. So how does the the scriptures define freedom? Well, it's a freedom for, I will say a positive freedom. It's not freedom from just the ability to, to choose, but to choose good. Not just to choose whatever you want to choose, but to choose good. And we need power from outside of ourselves to be able to choose what is good and to live the way of Jesus and to to conform our desires to Jesus. You see, true freedom and salvation is not having no master at all, but it's having the right master. I'll say it again. True freedom and salvation is not found in having no master at all, but having the right master. You could put authority in there. You could put king in there for master. You could put whatever the label is for that that type of savior, lord, king figure. True freedom and salvation is having the right master. Again, this isn't the normal, the modern definition of freedom. We belong to ourselves and we do what only pleases us. We get to think however we want to think without any constraints. I want to put two people side by side to really show us this if we need more convincing, right? Let's just say you have the person who's living in the United States, right? One of the greatest countries to live in for um, just uh, material blessing and safety and those kinds of things. Let's say you have a person who all their dreams have come true. Everything they could have possibly dreamed about has come true from 
their family, relationships, work, career, everything is falling into place perfectly. But yet that person doesn't feel free. They want more. There's a discontentment. They want, they, they, they want to go after more. They can't rest. There's not this stillness. They want more, uh, uh, more uh, power in relationships. They want more from their career. They want to make more money, right? So let's set one of those persons, per, per people up and say, well, why aren't they experiencing freedom? They have everything they've ever wanted and everything that our culture says is good, right? And then you have another person, let's say someone outside of the United States. And if you've traveled in at any length to, to third world countries or countries really just outside of our country, you'll see this, right? Someone who's under an oppressive ruler, an oppressive regime. A lot of their freedoms have been taken away. They don't have access to the things we have access to as far as consumption, food, clothing, the, the type of houses we have, the, the homes we live in, right? But yet they're free. They're joyful. They're happy. And we'll usually say that, oh, that's, that's because of, of Jesus, right? And that's true. But if you look at it through the, through the lens of freedom, they found freedom. They found their, 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 what their soul and heart most desire. They found it in Jesus, and they haven't found it in those other things. See, when you only serve the right master, our souls and the deepest parts of us will be satisfied. That we truly find freedom and salvation. God made us. He made us. He created us. He knows what makes us most happy. He knows what will bring us most fulfillment. He knows what will satisfy our deepest longings. And he gives us the way to follow in Jesus. Uh, St. Augustine or uh, Augustine of Hippo says this, free choice is sufficient for evil, but hardly for good. He's saying that, that this free choice without any kind of constraint is not good. It's not good for good. It will not lead us to good. It really only leads us to evil because then everyone else gets a piece of us. We're gonna find something to give our lives to. We're gonna find something to put ourselves under. We're gonna find another master to give ourselves to unless we put ourselves under the true and better king and that is Jesus. John Mark Comer um, in his new book, uh, um, Tell No Lies, I think it's called, um, or Believe No Lies, I can't remember the book. Um, uh, just, just bought it, really good book, um, He says this, much of what our world calls freedom is what the way of Jesus and many others calls slavery and vice versa. And you think about this, right? If you just lived like Jesus told you to live, a lot of the world would think you're crazy, think you're regressive, and think that you're enslaved to something else. And that is true, that we are enslaved to Jesus, okay? So that is the nature of freedom. Now let's look at the third thing. We see who we are. Right? We see something about humanity in this story, or those who are being saved. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. They feared greatly, as we all would too. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? What are you doing, God? They're going to wipe us out. Verse 12, is this not what we've said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, which they didn't say this in Egypt, by the way. It's interesting. They didn't say this when the Bible says when they were actually in Egypt. But they say, is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. They grumble, right? They complain. 
how quick they are to go back to slavery, right? It's like, no, God, we can't trust you here. We can't trust you. You just, you just sent 10 miraculous plagues down on Egypt just a little bit ago, but yet we can't trust you to get us out of this. So why are you going to let us die? You must, you're must letting us die. That's, that's your plan. So why can't we just go back to being slaves? Why can't we just go back to Egypt under this tyrannical ruler? It'll be better than dying here in the wilderness. They are so faithless right now. They have zero faith in God. Exodus 16, two through three. This is a, a, a few chapters later. Um, again, grumbling. This is after God has saved them. They've come through the Red Sea, and then they say this. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, who were the leaders um, over Israel in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, with that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for he had brought us out to the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Like they're whining because it's, they, they, they don't trust God to provide for them, right? God's providing them manna. They don't like it, right? They, wanted, they said, we, just, we had meat. We were slaves, but at least we got to eat meat. At least we were there with all the good food. We got to eat and we weren't hungry. Again, not trusting God that he'll provide to, to, to fill their hunger. And we're just like them. We're just like them. So often we don't, we will say that we believe God is in control, but we don't have the faith that, and we don't live like he truly is in control. Let's just take our, 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 our food, right? So we'll say that, we'll say that in other areas of our life, we'll say that, well, God's not in control, but just take food, right? Every type, of, most of us are so far removed from how we get food. Think about it. Um, if you if you eat down sit dinner uh, eat dinner at the table at home or you go to a restaurant, right? How many steps have it has it taken for the food to get to you to be able to eat? Most of us have just have no idea how long that's taken to get there, and most of those steps had nothing to do with you or nothing to do with us, right? And even if you're the type that wants to live off the land and just go straight and and eat the food that's right in front of you and kill it and eat it, um, God is still providing the food to to come across your path for you to be able to eat. And we don't think about this in our day-in-to-day-out lives, right? Like getting food to eat and having it pretty much, most of us, whenever we want it, that is God's gift to us. That's God being faithful to us and showing us every time we eat, I'm good. I'm going to provide for you. And we don't even think about that, but some other littler areas of our life we worry about. We're wondering if God's going to show up. Will God provide? And yet he provides for us all the time with food. See, right now at this point, the Israelites are more deserving of God's wrath than they are of God's grace and mercy. They are. They've turned their back on God. God has provided for them. He's provided a way out. He's made them a people. They're now, they have a God now to look after, to care for them, and yet they still are always wanting something else. They always think something else is better. They would rather go back into slavery and call Pharaoh their king and leader than be under the trust of God. Why? It was comfortable. It was known. It was predictable. But it was slavery that they were under in Egypt. And we're just like them, right? And I think in our church culture here, I can list 100 things here, but for us in Norman, Oklahoma, in our church culture, I want us to make sure that we understand what makes us saved. And this story is communicating that to us. You're not saved by being a good person. We're not. You're not saved by going to church. And that's a good thing, right? You're not saved by not doing really bad things. You're not saved by... 
um, growing up in a Christian home. These things do not save you. They can't lead to freedom and joy on their own. They just can't. These things do not save us. Only God saves us. So grumbling. Let's talk about grumbling. Um, John Mark Comer in, in that book, um, I thought this was really helpful. Um, if you're angry, anxious, or wanting to escape something, those are the three things there, um, those are, there, there's a potentiality there that you are grumbling in your heart. That's kind of how he says it in the book, right? So if you're angry, ask yourself, well, why am I angry? Why am I so mad about this right now? Is it because I'm not trusting God for something? What are you not trusting God for? And ask him to help you believe that, help him trust, help, have him help you trust him more in that. Or maybe you're anxious. What are you anxious about? What are you not believing God for in that moment? Or you know you're wanting to escape. You're just trying to numb out. You're trying to medicate on something, right? Why are you trying to numb out? Like what is it that you're running from? What is it that you're not believing God for in the moment? Those things may be the things that are enslaving you, like Egypt was to the Israelites. But we should be the kind of people, right? We should be the kind of people who say, I cannot believe God saved me. Like, I cannot believe the kind of person that I am, the kind of disobedience I had, the, the how many times I turned my back on God, how, how I treated other people, how I treated him. I cannot believe that God saved me. What a great and wonderful, merciful God that he saved a person like me. How wretched I am. How awful I was. How I never thanked him for even giving me food or shelter or providing for me or giving me good gifts not paying him any mind. He's revealed himself in his word and I could care less about his word before he saved me. We should be the most humble people on earth because of his grace and his mercy. We did nothing to deserve it and we are like the Israelites in this story. This is why this story is given to us so we can see ourselves in the story with the Israelites. We grumble, we complain. We're not faithful. We're not perfect, and yet God is perfect and faithful and merciful and gracious. And we should be saying, I cannot believe that you save me, God. And then when Jesus asked his disciples in, in John 6, he says, he says, do you want to go with him? He's just run a lot of people off of this teaching, right? And he asked the disciples, hey, do you want to go with him? Like, go if you want to go with him. And Peter says, where are we going to go? Like, where are we going to go, God? We, we've seen it all. We've done that. That's not going to give us what we want. And then, and, then, and then Peter says, he says, you have the words of eternal life. You, Jesus, are the hope. You, Jesus, are going to give me life. You, Jesus, are the way. I, I'm going I'm to trust that following you is going to lead me to what I want because I've tried all these other things. I've tried them, and they don't satisfy. We, this should make us a humble people. God, the, God's grace should. Not a people that grumble. Lastly, we see a God who... Um, we, we see about, uh, we learn about God, who is the one who is saving in this story. Verse 13, and Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Three things there listed in verse 13, fear not. And really this is that most commentators think this isn't like to comfort them. This is to rebuke them. Like you shouldn't be scared. Like, why are you scared? That's kind of the way God's saying this here. He's saying like, hey, fear not. I've got you. I'm gonna take care of you. No, 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 it's not like that. It's like, why are you scared? Be courageous. Know who I am. Fear not. 
And then he says, um, next he says, um, sorry, I'm getting my notes here. Um, Stand firm and be silent. Again, he is the sole actor in this story, in, in, the, in, the, in the redemption story, right? In the salvation narrative. Stand firm and be silent. Now think about this. If there was ever a time God could demand something from his people, now's the time. Israel has nowhere to go. They have no other hope. There's nothing that can get Israel out of this spot, right? Uh, Pharaoh behind him, Red Sea before him. There's nothing. So God could ask anything of them. I want a commitment God says, I want in writing, I want you to sacrifice for me right now. I want you to promise me that you'll never, ever do this again, right? Every other religion or worldview at this moment demands something from humanity to get access to God. And God doesn't say that. He specifically says, stand firm, like stay where you're at, and don't say a word. You be silent. And then three, he says, see the salvation of the Lord. Watch what I'm about to do. Watch it with your eyes so you'll remember Watch it, because I'm going to refer back to this story, and as a people, this is going to be one of the stories that, that you remember to, to trust me in my faithfulness. And notice he says, see the salvation of the Lord. Not just receive it, not just think about it. And I think this is a good thought for us, right? We need to, we need to, need to see our salvation. When's the last time you, you gazed or stared upon Jesus as your Savior and thought about him and visualized him as the one who died for you when you were deserving of that death. There's something about seeing our salvation with our eyes that God wants us to do here. Verse 14, the Lord will fight for you and you only have to be silent. Watch what I'm gonna do, God says. And then in Exodus 14, 30 through 31, we'll skip a lot of that, the end of the story. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. Yeah, they did. And believed in the Lord and his servant Moses, right? You can imagine, put yourself there, right? Like you're this close to death, this close to death. And then God shows up and miraculously parts the sea, lets the sea wash over, Israel goes through, lets the sea uh, come back over the Egyptians. And, And if you're seeing this, you're probably saying, okay, God, I will never sin again, right? After this, like, I, I, I'm gonna follow you 100%. I'm never gonna sin again. I'm never gonna do that again. I promise God, after I, what I just saw, I'm gonna give you my life. And, and we know how the story goes, right? After this, the cycle continues over and over and over. God is faithful. God shows up when we are not faithful. And Israel was not faithful over and over and over Again, and we would be the same way, I think, if we were there, right? Yes, God, I'll obey you 100% of the time, but we know that's not true. We've probably made those deals with God, and yet we still fall short. Now, God gives them the law after this, and he says, obey this, right, to, to, to try to help them know that doesn't work either, right? Sacrificial system keeps them in relationship with God. Still doesn't work. Does it change who they are? And then we get to Jesus, right? And God provides a better way. We're going to look at this more next week. But it's a way that we don't just pass through a body of water to safety, that we go from death to life. Not from running from the Egyptians, a, a, a worldly power, but it's actually a new creation from death to life. Where, where, where he doesn't just give us the law, but it says he writes the law on our hearts. 
He writes the law in our hearts. And he gives us the Holy Spirit to be able to obey the things that he's asking us to do. This is the good news of the gospel. He provides a way in Jesus, a once and for all way that we can be new creature, the new, new creations and obey him and not have the power of sin ruling over us. Yes, we're not perfect. We're still going to struggle. We're still going to have to fight sin. But we have the ability to overcome the power of sin. We don't have, the, we don't have to, to be enslaved to any sin any longer. We can fight the sin through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives us. So what do we need to do coming out, coming out of this? Go to him. Lift up your eyes. Look at him. Remember your salvation. Remember how he saved you when you were undeserving. Remember that. The Bible calls this really repentance. If you're struggling with something, if, you, if, you're, if you're enslaved by sin, the Bible says go to him, talk to him about it, right? I, I want to do better. This is, this, I'm, I'm falling short, God. I haven't found my freedom and joy in you. Help me find my freedom and joy in you. Through your spirit, help me obey. Help me know you to a greater degree. Uh, please, please fill me with your spirit to, allow, to help me follow you. So go to him, run to him, remember your salvation, and repent and ask him to fill you in such a way that you can do what he asks us to do in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for stories like this, stories that just aren't good biblical stories, but stories that mean so much to us today, stories that were written down for our benefit that we can see ourselves in the story, that you're the same God today as you are then, faithful to your covenant, faithful to your promises. And we see ourselves in the Israelites. We are wayward. We forget about you. We don't always do the right thing. And yet you are faithful to your promise that you won't wipe us out. You provide a way. You did back then, you provided a way and you've provided the best way now in Jesus. So help us see that. If we need eyes to see, help us have eyes to see. If we're looking to something else to save us, like just being a good person or church attendance or counting that we were raised in a Christian home, I pray that you would help us see that, that those things don't save us. Only humbling ourselves and saying, God, I need your grace and mercy in my life through Jesus. That is the only thing that saves us. That's the good news. So help us believe that. Wherever we're at in, on that, on that, uh, in the story, in our story, I pray you'd help us be humble to come to you and help us and lead us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.